All right, and good morning, Ridgepoint Church. We are glad that you're here. Uh, thank you for that, Josh. I appreciate it. Uh, we're glad that you're here. We're actually wrapping up a series. Uh, but I got to say this as we get going. Who knew all these years that hiding behind a base was holding Alan back? Man, the excitement up on the stage today, that was crazy. It was palpable. We love that. We're glad that you're here. We have a lot going on. We're wrapping up this series and I can say this, I know as we start to wrestle with, you know, we come to faith in Christ, we start to want to study scripture for ourselves, and sometimes that can be a daunting task. Sometimes we approach scripture and they're like, I don't know where to begin, and, and, and sometimes I really don't get a whole lot out of it. If, if that's you, if that's where you're at right now, I want to challenge you, stick with it. Uh, the more we study scripture, the more we start to grasp what it's about, uh, we can start to, to really get a whole lot more out of it. And this is one of those messages that the more I study for this, and I can say this, I've been speaking in youth and, and church for about 15 years. This is probably the most excited I've been about a message. I might be able to say that like every week. But I was really excited as I was studying this because this is a story I was familiar with. And yet as I read it, the more I read it, the more I said, man, I didn't fully get this until I started studying it this time. And I'm sure next time I might get it even more. But sometimes we approach Scripture, and, and if we've been going to church, maybe we thought, oh, I've read it all, I understand all of it. But the more we read Scripture, the more we really study Scripture, the more it starts to come alive to us. And so hopefully this morning as we get into this, it's a story, if you've been going to church for a while, you've probably heard parts of the story. Stick with it. I think there's something we can gain from this this morning. Uh, we're wrapping up this series called Judge Not. And, and this, this whole series has been built on this premise. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus teaching, judge not unless you want to be judged. That's a big deal. And, and it would be really neat in life. In fact, I grew up, in a, I lived in a neighborhood. I loved our neighborhood. I had a lot of friends my own age. And we would get together. We had a lot of boys who grew up in our neighborhood. And we would get together and play every sport imaginable. We'd play wiffle ball out in the front yard. We'd play basketball out in the driveway. But our favorite sport that we played was football. And almost on a weekly basis, we'd play football either in our yard or in another yard or out at the park. And, and eventually you get one person who started to step up to become the leader of kind of that team. Most of the time it was the quarterback because the quarterback would tell us all what to do. And a lot of times he would do that. It would look something like this. He would gather his team together. He'd start to draw up plays. And he'd gather the team together and say, okay, here's what I want you to do. And he would find one person on the team, probably the person on the team who was the biggest of the biggest chest. He said, I'm going to draw plays. And he started writing on the person's chest. And he'd say, okay, Carl, here's what I want you to do. And you run this route. You run a post. And Eddie, I want you to run this five-yard and out pattern. And, and Eric, I want you to run straight. And you run straight out on a fly. And, and he'd draw it up on the person's chest. But at some point, the plays got too convoluted for someone's chest. The chest wasn't big enough. We're only like nine years old. And so we had to come up with a better area to drop the plays. So if you grew up playing football like I did, where did you drop those plays? On the ground. That's right. We'd get a good spot of dirt because grass wouldn't work. You'd find a good spot of dirt and say, all right, everybody huddle around here. And we would start to drop plays in the dirt. And then as soon as we're done, we'd look around and say, okay, does everybody have it? Okay, let me wipe the slate clean because I don't want the other team to see what I'm doing. Like that would be cheating if they saw that. So drop plays because I want to know as a quarterback, where everybody on my team was, that if I'm being blitzed, if someone's coming after me, I would know where they're going to be so I could throw the ball to them. Wouldn't it be awesome? Because we all deal with conflict. We all deal with, with things in our life that are really difficult. And I think the struggle most of us face is, God, sometimes I don't know exactly what you want out of me in this situation. I'm facing this huge major decision. And God, if you could help me, if, if you could, in your word, outline exactly what I'm supposed to do here, if you could tell me precisely where I'm going to be, I want to do that. The problem is figuring out where you want me to be. God, reveal that to me. And it would be awesome if Jesus could say, hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to draw the play out for you in the stand. I'm going to write this out and tell you exactly where to be. Go do it. I'm going to take care of it. The pass is going to be right where it needs to be. Sometimes life doesn't work that way. God gives us general principles. 
Sometimes he does give us more specific direction, but sometimes he gives us general principles. But wouldn't it be awesome if Jesus could draw the place in the sand? Today, we're actually going to look at a scripture where Jesus does write in the sand. He's not drawing place. He's not actually doing the teaching through what he writes in the sand. But in this whole dynamic of what's happening here, Jesus can, through his actions and also through the words that he says, I think he can communicate so, many, so much to those of us who right now, if we're going through conflict, he speaks to us about conflict resolution. When we're, when we're talking about how do we deal with people that are making some huge mistakes, he talks to us specifically, how do we do this in the context? We want to follow Matthew 7. We don't, we don't want to be judgmental. We don't want to be cruel about it. But what happens when I am strategically placed in a person's life that maybe not believing exactly what I believe, how do I handle that? See, this whole series is built on, on that idea in, in Matthew 7 where Jesus is teaching us, judge not lest you want to be judged. And if you hold people to high measure, you're going to hold up to that same standard. So be careful about that. And there's two things we've talked about the first couple weeks of this series as we get to wrap this up today. Two things we can agree upon. First of all, having a judgmental spirit is not acceptable. Especially if you're here today and you say, I'm a Christ follower, I've, I've embraced the truth of Jesus, and I'm following Christ. For us, having a judgmental spirit is not acceptable. But on the opposite extreme, there are people who say, well, because people shouldn't have a judgmental attitude, because that isn't how they should be, that means I can do whatever I want and get away with it. And if you start to say that what I'm doing is wrong, well, then you're judging me. So therefore, if I take that to the nth degree, I can do whatever I want. And that position is just as dangerous. And, and so this whole series has been building up to this point. What do we do in our life? If right now, if we're in a position of influence in someone's life, and it could be someone, and I want to say this last week, and this is a big deal before we go any further. Last week I said, if we're dealing with people that are inside the church, there's a standard Jesus holds us to, and it is entirely acceptable for us to lovingly hold other believers that count themselves as believers to that standard. There's a way we do that. There's, there's a careful way we do that. But it would be inconsistent, it would be hypocritical for us to hold unbelievers to that same standard. In fact, it talks about in 1 Corinthians, we shouldn't do that. We're supposed to judge those inside the church, not those outside the church. And when we do that as believers, and sometimes we do that in our culture, it makes us look very hypocritical and very judgmental. And those are the two things that are most levied against Christians today, is we're too judgmental, we're too critical. And so we said last week, if you're dealing with someone outside the church, absolutely, we don't hold them to the same standard because they don't believe the same things we believe. And, and our idea there is simply to introduce them to Jesus, and that's it. And I agree entirely with that. However, there are certain things that we can agree upon, whether or not you believe in Jesus, whether or not you believe in God at all. There are just certain things we know we should not do. And if we see someone doing one of those things, like what do we do about that? Uh, for instance, if, if one of your friends woke up this morning and they said, hey, I'm thinking about killing someone today. I'm going to go murder someone. Is that a good idea? Like, listen, if someone comes to me and says that, I'm like, listen, I'm not being judgmental at all, but that's not going to turn out well for you. And it's definitely not going to turn out well for the other person. That's not me being judgmental. That's me giving you good advice. And there are a couple of things we can just agree upon. I think everyone, regardless of what they believe, they agree upon it. And one of those things is when someone is committing adultery. Now, here's the deal. When we are making mistakes, it's even big mistakes, Sometimes we're blind to those, those blind spots in our life. And there are people in our life who God puts there specifically to be able to speak truth in our life. And this is one of those things. I've dealt with people going through some adultery-type situations, and it's really hard, and sometimes it kind of blindsides them out of nowhere, and they weren't expecting it. All of a sudden, they find themselves in a situation where they were never expecting them to be. These are good, honest, uh, hardworking, God-loving people, and all of a sudden, they find themselves in really difficult situations. Whether or not they believe in God, though, we can sometimes speak truth in our life. But often, 
what we communicate is not as important as how we communicate it. Well, today the scripture we're going to look at, in fact, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to John chapter 8. The scripture that we're dealing with is a lady who's caught up in that situation. And as she's caught up in that situation, uh, we're going to get into this, and we're going to see that, that specifically Jesus gathers his people around, and, and she is brought to him. And Jesus has to answer the situation. And I think, again, what Jesus communicates here says something about how he handles the conflict that's happening there. But also, how does he lovingly offer guidance to the person who's struggling in that situation? Because I think a lot of us find ourselves in that situation, and the easiest thing for us to do is to say, let's just pretend it's not happening because I don't like conflict. Jesus doesn't shy away from the conflict, but I think he speaks volumes into our life about how we can deal with that conflict. With that being said, let's open up John chapter 8, and we're going to get into this. John chapter 8, verse 1, uh, begins by laying the context of, of, of how this uh, scene is, is setting. It says this. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. So the setting is Jesus here, he's, he's, he's at the temple, and a group of people has gathered around, and he begins teaching. This is important for us to grasp, to get the picture of what's happening. Jesus is in a setting at the temple, and other people have gathered around. Jesus isn't alone, he's teaching other people. And it says this, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Hold on, before we go any further, let's talk about these scribes and the Pharisees. See, there are different groups of people. Jesus has about three years of earthly ministry here on earth. Uh, he lived for about 30 years without really, really doing any ministry. He's getting a, a, of age according to Jewish standards. And so he spends 30 years with really not a whole lot that's, that's happening that we know of, not recording scripture. But at the, about the age of 30, he begins his earthly ministry. First year is relative obscurity. But then he starts to gain popularity. People start to know who he is, and his, his crowds start to swell. And there are groups of people that don't like it. In particular, we hear about the Sadducees who aren't present here. But then we hear about the Pharisees, and we hear about the scribes. The scribes were kind of the theologians. They were the ones who really took care of all the theology. They were deep. They were solid individuals for the most part. Uh, often recording scripture is why they're called scribes. They'd write down scripture, and they were just the theologians. Uh, there's another group, a group of people called the, the Pharisees. The Pharisees considered them, themselves the religious elite. Now, a little bit of background, because it's going to become important to this. The Pharisees actually began as, as a group, as, as this, this gang of people gathering together, because they had the best of intents. There's, there's uh, about 400 years between the Old Testament, we know as Old Testament, and the New Testament. There's 400 silent years. And it's during those 400 silent years, we don't have any scripture recorded, but we have a lot of history, that we find that there's this group of people that become known as the Pharisees. And their goal is they see a lot of corruption in their day. They see a lot of corruption for the, for the children of Israel, for their people. And they say, we don't like this. A bunch of our people are making a bunch of bad choices. And we want to help them out. We want to encourage them. We want to clean all of this up. And listen, that's an admirable thing. Like they started with the best of intentions. They said, we want to clean up our people. And so we want to do the best job of, of, of loving them and speaking truth. And we want to hold up God's word and let, let's become obedient to that. And that's a good thing. That's a healthy thing. But what happens, and, and what's prone to happen with religious people, and listen, this can absolutely be us today. What's prone to happen is we tend to elevate God's word, we tend to love God's word, and we want obedience, we want people to, to respond and, 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 and follow what God's word says. We want to have that purification, but sometimes we can elevate that to such a high standard of being obedient that we don't even, we fall so in love with being obedient that we don't even recognize God when he's right there. And we stress obedience over a love for God. And that's where things become dangerous. That's where we, we become way too judgmental. And that's what happens here. The Pharisees start off with great intentions. But they have God's word. Then they start to add to it their own traditions, their own laws. 
And eventually they elevate those things so high that they look down on everyone else who doesn't think, talk, look, or act like them. So much so that God himself, God in the flesh, comes before them. And they don't recognize him. And not only do they not recognize him, but they actually go after him and start to try to trip him up. And repeatedly in the New Testament, we see as Jesus gains popularity that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, these three different groups, are always trying to attack Jesus, and they're always trying to trip him up. And so that's exactly what's happening here. So it says that, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I'm sorry, the scribes and the Pharisees, they come along, and it says in verse 3, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said this to him, and, and we're going to get into that. But, but I got a problem with this right away. First of all, notice this. Go back to verse 3 for just a second. It says that they, they, the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and they placed her in the midst. Where's the guy in this situation? Like, it took two people to tango here, and the Pharisees, we don't see anything, any indication the guy is present at all, but they bring the woman who's been caught in adultery. Now, we don't know whether she was married and she had sexual relationship with a man that wasn't her husband, or whether he was married and, and she was cheating on, on, on his wife, or maybe both of them were. But we know they've been caught in adultery, and we know that right here the woman is brought, and in this situation, the woman is the most vulnerable. God forbid we ever find ourselves in a position where we take a person in a vulnerable, vulnerable position and we use them just to prove a point. And that's exactly what's happening here. The Pharisees and the scribes take the person who is most vulnerable and they said, we're going to put her up on a pedestal, ultimately because we want to trick Jesus, but we're going to put her up on this pedestal, make everyone look at her, point her out, and she is really, really vulnerable, and we're going to use her right now to prove a point. The moment we start to do that, the moment we start to use people to prove a point, we become guilty of being very judgmental. That's exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees do. The, the, the man is a present. Instead, they have the woman there. We don't know what's going on. Maybe it was one of their friends who, who tricked her specifically in this situation. We don't know that at all. But it says they bring the woman. They place her in the midst. And they said this to him. They said, this, they said teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, now in the law of Moses, command us to stone such women. So what do you say? So they say, Jesus, here's the deal. And it's true. In, in the law of Moses in the Old Testament, it was actually commanded, we're supposed to take care of her. Because of her sin, we're supposed to stone her. Now, I want you to get this. If they came with the right intent in this situation, they, they had absolute right. According to the law of Moses, they had the absolute right to be able to do this. But their goal here was not to purify their people. They weren't looking out for their people. They weren't even looking out for, their best, for, for, the, for her best interest or their best interest. They were looking specifically and only to trick Jesus in this situation. So they come with this kind of this trick question, which we'll get to in a second. Teacher, according to the law of Moses, we should be able to stone her. So let me ask you this. What do you have to say about this? Like, what's your response to this? Beginning of verse 6, it says this. It says, they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Their goal, their only goal was not to help this woman out or, or to purify their people. Their goal was simply to test Jesus. See, they want to be able to bring a charge against him. They're trying to put him in, in a perfect, they're trying to put him in a pickle where he had no solution. See, according to the law of Moses, this woman could be, because of committing adultery, she could be stoned for that act. But the Roman law, which was the prevailing law of their day, said you can't stone without our permission. So they came to Jesus saying, Jesus, how are you going to respond to this? Because they wanted to test him. They wanted to bring a charge against him. And they said, if, if he responded in such a way of saying, okay, yeah, go ahead, let's stone her. She deserves it. 
then they would run back to the Roman people, the Roman leaders, the Roman law people, and they would say, listen, that, that crazy preacher over there, he's about to stone a woman without your permission, and he'd be arrested. However, if Jesus responds and says, don't stone her, that's not the proper protocol here, you shouldn't do that, then they could turn back to their own religious people and say, see, this teacher who says he's one of us isn't even willing to follow the law of Moses, he's a heretic. And so literally these leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're sitting here saying, we have come up with a perfect situation. How is Jesus going to respond to this? And so looking at Jesus saying, okay, Jesus, what is your answer going to be? Now, some of you already, you've heard this story. Maybe you grew up hearing this story over and over. So you know what the solution is going to be. But, but bear with me for a second because I want us to think about this. If this were me and you and we were presented a series of choices what would our choice be? See, when I was in elementary school, I used to love reading, which is crazy, but I used to love reading because my parents got me these books called Choose Your Own Adventure Books. Did anybody read those Choose Your Own Adventure books? I had a few in the first service. Uh, basically, you start reading the book, and then it gives you choices, and, and you, it says, if you want to do this, turn to page 45. If you want to do this, turn to page 58, whatever, and you kind of told how the story was going to go. It's a really neat principle. So for our purposes, I want to say, if, if we had a choice in a matter of day, I'm going to give us five choices. And I want to ask us two questions at the end. Save your judgment until the very end. But I want to give you two questions. We're going to look at all five choices. At the end, I want to ask you this. Which one would you do? And which one do you think Jesus would do? Let's look at, let's look at the first one. The first one, in this situation, you're asking Jesus, what are you going to do? And Jesus says, listen, I'm going to agree with you. Let's go ahead and stone her. So that's choice A. I'm not going to give you any other indicators. But if that is you right there, if that's your choice, you are a judgmental person. Uh, don't, don't choose that one. That's not the one we want. The second one is this. I'm not going to stone her. In fact, I'm talking the accusers out of stoning her. But then I'm going to stand with them and yell really mean things at her. And we sit there and say, well, I wouldn't really do that. But I think in, in, in our culture, in Christian culture, we can be guilty of this. Because it appears as if we're showing a little bit of grace. Because the truth is, according to the law of Moses, she could have been killed. And so we can sit here and say, well, we're not going to kill her. But instead, we're going to stand with our friends and say really mean things about her. We say, well, that, that's not me, but sometimes I think as churches, we can do that. We can point people out and say, look at how bad they are. Look at the bad choices they made. And so we're going to sit in our groups, and we're going to get really mad at them, and we're going to yell mean things at them, and we're going to hurt them, which also is being judgmental. We're going to protest outside her family home. We're not going to hold it against her. It's not her fault, but it's their fault. They're the ones that raised Jezebel in the first place. So let's go outside her family home, and we're going to protest. We're going to hold up signs. And we're going to picket outside of their home. Now, I know in our church, there's not a lot of the picketing folk. We're not, we're not out front on record highway holding up signs about how God hates the world. But sometimes I wonder if, if our critical spirit, even if we don't say those words out loud or go outside and protest outside of people's homes, but we see people making choices. And we see sometimes kids being raised and they make bad choices. And then we right away jump to this conclusion saying, well, their parents must have done something wrong. Like, look at the way they're being, look at how they're growing up. They must have made some bad choices earlier in their life. Their parent must have messed this whole thing up. Again, having that judgmental spirit. So A, stoner. B, yell things at her. C, protest outside of her home. D is let her go. You're free to go. Everything's good. Don't worry about it. And then E, probably the one I'd be most excited about. Let her E. Maybe. There it is. Stone the accusers. Man, I'm over here, and I'm really mad. I got really upset about what they're doing. And so because they're over there, and they're about to uh, throw stones at her, I'm going to pick up those same stones, 
and I'm going to go after them. And, I'm, and, and, and sometimes there's conflict, and, and how we handle that conflict is a big deal, but sometimes we're caught up in our, in our flesh, we can make those mistakes. And so two questions I had, those are the five choices we have. If it were you, which one would you do? What do you think? Yell it out, go ahead. C, D, maybe, anybody E? Would anybody, honest, thank you, Paul, awesome. <laughs> a few, they're like, yes, I want to, and, and there's part of us that feels vindicated, we're going to do that. Uh, and, and, and here's the deal, okay, that's what we would do. Which one does Jesus do? Kind of. But actually the answer is not complete. I kind of, this is a trick question, because Jesus actually doesn't do any of these. D sounds like the simple answer because it seems like if people are just pragmatically looking at the result of what happens, it seems like that's what happens. But let's actually look at the scripture and see, see what, what, what does happen. Uh, Jesus is there and, and, he, and he, he's being asked this question, and there's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of tension in the situation. And if you've ever been in a situation like that where there's a lot of tension, ultimately what people are looking for, especially those accusers, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're coming waiting for a response out of Jesus. And they're coming even anticipating the response of Jesus. They say, I want to know. I know what he's going to respond. He's going to respond to one of two things. And either one, I'm ready to attack him. So it says this. The end of verse 6. It says, his response to this situation, to this conflict that's happening. Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. The Pharisees and the scribes are looking for one of two reactions. One of two responses by Jesus. What they're not expecting is for Jesus to start to diffuse the situation by leaning over and he starts writing in the ground. Now, we don't know what he writes. There's been a lot of people that speculated. He, maybe he was just doodling in the ground trying to kill time. Some people said he was writing Bible verses specifically going against what they were doing. Some people, and I think a lot of theologians, kind of are in agreement that what he probably started to do is write out the sins of the accusers. It's okay, especially because of what he's about to say. He starts to write out some of those sins, or maybe some of those same accusers had done the very same act. He starts to write out the name of some of the women they've been doing the same, very same thing with. But regardless of what Jesus does, and that's all speculation, regardless of what Jesus does, I think this says something about conflict resolution. Because when people are upset and they come to us, most of the time our response is to respond in, in, in anger. Like, we get upset, you come, you're, you're thro- throwing accusations at me, then I'm going to put up my guard, and now I'm going to respond in the same manner. But Jesus starts to diffuse the situation by saying, I'm going to hit pause on the situation. See, a lot of us, when we face conflict, or we may face major life decisions, we want to rush in that decision. We think, man, if I'm facing this decision, I have to make this decision now. I have to deal with this conflict now. And what happens is we make a rash decision, and we end up regretting that decision. Or someone comes with this, this, this conflict, and we rush into the conflict, and we bring more conflict ourselves, and everything escalates instead of de-escalating. And so Jesus does the one thing that's not expected. He says, let's hit pause in this discussion for a second. I'm going to start drawing in the sand. Now, I imagine there were some people there who were really fired up and some people that were there just wanting to see how Jesus would respond. And for those who are just wondering how Jesus was going to respond, I can't help but imagine that as he starts to write in the sand, they look like, what's he doing? Like, I wasn't expecting this. What's he doing? Like, what's he writing in the sand? What, what, is, he, what is that? And he starts to diffuse the situation simply by hitting pause on the conflict. When we're dealing with conflict, some of the very same principles could apply in our life. Listen, if there's conflict, someone gets really upset, don't respond in anger. Instead, take a step back, pause. Let's all kind of catch our breath. We'll come back and we'll re- redeal with the situation when we're all calmed down. 
So Jesus kind of, he starts to write in the sand. And as he writes in the sand, it says they continue to ask him. So they continue to pepper him with those questions. Then he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then one more time, he writes on the ground. One more time, he bends over, he starts writing on the ground again. So his response is not to let her go. He doesn't exonerate her. He doesn't tell her, hey, what you did was okay. This is adultery. If we looked at those big sins, we look at murder, that's wrong, don't do that. Adultery destroys families. This is a big deal. Regardless of what you believe about God, most of us are going to be in agreement. Adultery is not healthy for your relationships. And so Jesus doesn't say, hey, go keep doing what you're doing. Instead, he actually says, you're guilty. And I'm, I'm actually, if I, I got to choose the law of Moses or, or the law of Rome, I'm going to side with the law of Moses. What you're doing is wrong. I'm not exonerating you. But instead, he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. He doesn't exonerate her. Instead, he says, you're guilty, and I'm going to appoint your executioner. So he looks at the people who are the accusers and says, okay, you're right. She deserves to be killed. Now I'm going to appoint her executioner. Let him, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, it says this. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older one, with the wiser one. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now, I want us to see this because this is so crucial for why this story is so compelling. Jesus was the only one. When Jesus says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, Jesus was the only one in that crowd that was there that fit the profile of being able to be the one to throw the stone. And Jesus looks at her. Everyone else drops the stone. And Jesus walks up to her. Now he's face to face, the only one who actually could be the executioner, the only one who could be the judge during executioner. He's the only one. And he says this. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. I think this is crucial because Jesus comes and all, all the, the accusers, one by one, they drop the stones, they walk away. And maybe it's because they feel guilty because their own sins were written down. Maybe just Jesus' words alone were enough to, to realize we, we thought we had the perfect question and we didn't. It didn't work out the way we wanted. But they have all left. Now, I want us to see this because Jesus is a full embodiment at all times. He's fully God and fully man. There's part of this I see as the expression of his deity. He comes right now as God, as one who could be the executioner, but in a place she recognizes him for who he is. She said, Jesus stood up and said, Women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And she recognized him for who he is. And then it says, Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus comes fully God as the one who could be the executioner. And he chooses to show, to show in that situation, he chooses to show grace. The one who could have brought punishment instead pours grace upon her, the one who deserved the punishment. And that's the picture of the gospel. It's for each one of us that deserves punishment because that's all of us. Whether our sins are this obvious or not, for every one of us, we've made mistakes that deserve condemnation. And Jesus looks at her and says, where are your accusers? And he says, none of them. She says, no one is here, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. But from now on, stop doing that. Jesus could have brought condemnation, and he chose not to. He's the only one that deserved to do that. But instead, he chose to show grace, and that's the expression of his divinity. But also, I think he also speaks to us as being fully human as well. See, I've been in situations before where I've had close friends make some pretty big mistakes. And when those close friends are making those big mistakes, if I had come with a bunch of friends... They say, hey, there's, there's eight of us, 
and we're going to come now and have a discussion with you about the choices that you're making, I can almost guarantee you that situation is, is not going to go well. Imagine right now, maybe it's not a big deal, maybe you're doing something that's, that's it's, it's a minor sin, but it's still something you shouldn't be doing, and eight people come and tell you you're wrong. How are you going to take that? Probably not very well. If Jesus had been over there and he talked to the, the accusers out of saying, hey, don't throw stones at her and let's, let's, let's go have a discussion with her. And Jesus grabs all these accusers who don't know this woman at all, who don't care about her at all, who are just trying to use her as a pawn in their game. He says, okay, now let's go talk and try to correct her. If he had chosen to use that course of action, she wouldn't have been receptive to the message. But instead, Jesus starts to build up some relational equity. He starts to say, listen, you guys, stop what you're doing let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, as, as they leave, Jesus walks over and says, where are your accusers? They're not here, neither do I condemn you. And in doing so, and, and at one small act, he's building up that equity to the point where he can begin to speak truth into our life. Now, mind you, go ahead and put that last verse up there one more time. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. But then he finishes out and says, from now on, sin no more. Jesus doesn't excuse what she did. He doesn't say, hey, what you're doing, it was okay, it wasn't that big a deal. In fact, he calls what she was doing sin. But what he doesn't do is he doesn't continue to look back at the past. See, judgment is all about looking back at the past and saying, because you made bad choices in the past, you're incapable of making good choices now. The past doesn't define us. And so Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't allow the, the past to define her present successes. But he also just doesn't just drop it and, and, and let it go and, and not comment on it. See, everyone wants to get excited about Jesus saying, neither do I condemn you, because that's easy to rally behind. Man, Jesus was loving. He took care of people. He showed grace, and he did. But at the end, he says, I'm not going to worry about the past, but I am going to start to speak truth that if you continue to do the same things that you're doing, it's not going to be good for you. When we encounter destructive behavior in a friend's life, the most judgmental thing we can do is to stay silent. When we encounter destructive behavior in a friend's life, the most judgmental thing we can do is to stay silent. And that seems backwards. Like when I first started thinking of that concept, I'm like, no, there are other things we could do that'd be judgmental. But here's what I've seen. When I see people that I know, people that I have relationships with making choices, it's really hard to stay silent. Like if I don't talk to them, I end up talking to someone else. I end up saying, hey, have you guys seen what, what he's doing? Like someone needs to do something about this. Listen, if I have someone I care about and they're making a bad decision, there's only two people I should talk to. Talk to God first, and then talk to them. Talking over here to our friends and saying, hey, let's pray about Johnny over here. He's making some bad choices. That's gossip. Instead, I say, man, in love, I want to I pray, God, reveal to him the mistakes he's making. God, let me humbly come confessing my own faults. And now allow me to be the voice of truth in this person's life. If I do that, the correction I'm able to offer is a whole lot more solid, it's a lot more constructive, and a lot less judgmental. Now, I'm not saying it always comes across that way. There's some people who you can do everything you want. You can say, hey, I love you, but these choices are, are not helping. They're not beneficial. We need to make some changes. Some people aren't going to accept that. If you've done everything right in your life, if, if you've handled that situation as best you can, and they're not receptive, sometimes there's nothing you can do about that. But let me say this. This whole series was kind of built on the idea that we can all find ourselves in that judgmental spot. The Pharisees and the scribes, Pharisees especially started off with the best intentions, but eventually they got way offline. They focused on their own things. They got become, become very judgmental. And they're the people Jesus calls out most in Scripture. But they had the best of intentions. As religious people, sometimes we do the very same thing. If our goal throughout all of this is to say, man, I want to love the person as best I can, and I'm the person who's given correction that's valuable, 
But sometimes we're also the person on the other side of it. Sometimes we're the ones who people have to come to. And sometimes we have that close friend who comes and says, listen, I want to give you the best spiritual advice I can. And this isn't me being judgmental. This isn't me being cruel. I'm coming because I love you and I value you so much as a brother or as a sister that I want to give you some good advice. I want to give you good counsel. If that's you and there's someone who is spiritually in a position to be able to speak truth in your life, be receptive to that. Don't immediately jump to the idea, well, they don't like me, they're being judgmental. Sometimes God puts people in our life to be his mouthpiece, to speak truth in our life, and there is nobody above that. I'm glad there are people in my life, when I get out of balance, they're able to come alongside of me and put their arm around me and say, listen, JJ, the choices you're making, that's not helpful. We all need that, and that is not being judgmental. When Jesus says judged out, that's not what he's speaking to. There is a level of accountability. There is a level in which iron is supposed to sharpen iron. We're supposed to build each other up. But sometimes how we say what we say is more important than actually what we say. Jesus here handles the situation with grace. He handles the situation with the accusers with grace. Then he handles the situation of the one being accused with grace. And he comes and says, neither do I condemn you. But he also, Jesus is a full expression of both, both grace and truth. He handles it with grace. But then he also handles it with truth. We must try to do both things. There's a time we're called to, to set that bar high, but our love always exceeds the bar that we raise. That's who we're supposed to be. If we do that, then we can challenge people. We can look to their future without judging their past. We can help them become better people in the future without saying your past has defined you. And then we become very, very involved in, in challenging people and not judging them. Let's pray.